Hello, everybody. This is episode number 41 of the Bible Reading Podcast, and today we're grappling with the question, does God still give dreams and visions? And we're talking about the edifying purpose of spiritual gifts. So welcome to the show that my middle daughter says is a little bit too long, but C.S. Lewis has called the finest podcast he's ever listened to. Only one of those statements is true. Today's scripture features the emotional reuniting of Joseph with his brothers and Benjamin in Genesis chapter 43. We also find out the interesting tidbit that Egyptians consider it disgusting, at least at the time of Genesis, to eat at the same table as Hebrews for some odd reason. Sadly, I guess that shows us that the sin and stain of racism sort of finds a foothold in almost every culture and people. In Job chapter 9, we see Job answering the charges of his friend, Bildad, who has suggested yesterday in our reading that Job's children were killed because of their sins, and he has urged Job to turn to God and be healed and refreshed. The Bible tells us that none of that is true, and Job did not even turn away from God. But Job, at this point, says he's too afraid of God to seek him. Mark 13 is a much shorter version of what we call the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24, and it's centered on the end times teaching of Jesus. And finally, Romans chapter 13 urges Christians to submit to governing authorities, to be good citizens, and to put on the person and ways of the Lord Jesus Christ instead of the ways of the world. Today, we'll conclude or I guess I really should say we'll pause for a moment our discussion of dreams and visions and the more supernatural gifts of the Spirit. It is a subject we will return to at the end of February when we read through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which that represents the longest extended teaching in the Bible on the gifts of the Spirit. We did receive an anonymous bit of feedback on the website this week and also heard from quite a few people on social media about the issue of dreams and visions. Most of them seemed to indicate that they were in the pro camp and maybe they had an experience or two with God seeming to communicate to them via dreams. Our anonymous commenter on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, said... I have dreamed a true dream. I will not give the details because it does not reflect well upon the dreamer nor those dreamt of. But it happened on a Saturday night and it came to pass with some metaphorical license the following morning. From this dream I learned that the praise and worship of the living God is of infinitely more importance than our individual strife. Well said. That does sound like a a very interesting dream and perhaps one sent from God with a powerful meaning. Now, our anonymous commenter left that comment on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I would invite you to leave a comment, a question, an encouragement, a criticism, whatever, on the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. If you have a question you'd like us to cover in a future show, we'd be happy to do it. Just leave it there at as a comment. I don't have email or contact form on the website just because 
I have it on my other website, and I get tons of garbage every day, even though I have uh, spam filters and all that kind of stuff, and it's just not worth dealing with. So none of that. Just send a comment or connect via social media. I'd love to hear from you. I do want to, speaking of social media, invite you to share the show on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. Spread the word and uh, point people to the show. Maybe leave a good review for us. That would be very kind of you. In considering whether or not spiritual gifts like tongues, prophecy, and the like have ceased, and the very related question that we're covering today, whether God still speaks to his people or not via dreams and visions, it should be noted that the Bible does not make an obvious separation between what most would call supernatural gifts and the more, let's say, mundane or normal gifts. For instance, consider our passage from yesterday, Romans chapter 12, and then read the short list in 1 Corinthians 12. Romans 12 verse 6 says, According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhorting. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. That's Romans 12, 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 31 says, God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in other tongues? Do all interpret but desire the greater gifts? Now, in these two lists, and in the one in Ephesians chapter 4 as well, we see that there seems to be no delineation between gifts like healing, tongues, and prophecy, and gifts like teaching, helping, administrating, giving, and service. If the Bible somehow taught that some of those gifts that we are twice commanded to desire will cease very soon after the compilation of the New Testament, then one would think that the New Testament writers would clearly categorize the gifts between temporary and permanent. Sort of show us in the listing of these spiritual gifts that some are for all time, but some are just for the age that the Bible was written. But the very opposite is true. They're all mixed together in the spiritual gifts lists in a way that seems to argue against some of them being temporary and some of them permanent. Prophecy is taught is, is talked about right alongside of teaching. Sam Storms, which is a pastor uh, who is part of the Gospel Coalition, which is a group of Christians that are devoted to Jesus and his word, and uh, it includes some cessationists, those that believe the gifts of the Spirit have, uh, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased, and some continuationists who believe that they haven't ceased. But Sam Storms is a continuationist like myself. He makes the case that there does not seem to be any scripture that indicates that some of the listed gifts will cease at some point. This is what he says, beginning with Pentecost and continuing throughout the book of Acts, whenever the spirit is poured out on new believers, they experience his charismata. That's a Greek word that he's using there, meaning uh, the presence, the gifts of the spirit. Storm says, there's nothing to indicate these phenomena were restricted to them and then. Such appear to be both widespread and common in the New Testament church. Christians in Rome, Corinth, Samaria, Caesarea, Antioch, Ephesus, Thessalonica, and Galatia 
experience the miraculous and revelatory gifts. It's difficult to imagine how the New Testament authors could have spoken any more clearly about what New Covenant Christianity is supposed to look like. In other words, the burden of proof rests with the cessationists. If certain gifts of a special class have ceased, the responsibility is his or hers to prove it. We must give room to the explicit and oft-repeated purpose of the spiritual gifts, namely the edification of Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Nothing says storm, uh, storms I read in the New Testament or see in the condition of the church in any age, past or present, leads me to believe that we've progressed beyond the need for edification and therefore beyond the need for the contri- contribution of the charismata, the spiritual gifts. I freely admit that spiritual gifts were essential for the birth of the church, but why would they be any less important or needed for its continued growth and maturation? There's also the fundamental continuity or spiritually organic relationship between the church in Acts and the church in subsequent centuries. No one denies that there was an era or period in the early church that we might call apostolic. We must acknowledge the significance of the personal physical presence of the apostles and their unique role in laying the foundation for the early church. But nowhere does the New Testament ever suggest that certain spiritual gifts were uniquely and exclusively tied to them or that the gifts passed with their passing. The universal church or body of Christ that was established and established and gifted through the ministry of the apostles is the same universal church and body of Christ today. We are together with Paul and Peter and Silas and Lydia and Priscilla and Luke and members of the the same one body of Christ. And that's what I was talking about a little bit yesterday. Are we in a post-New Testament era that some scriptures from the New Testament apply to us and then others don't because we're not in a New Testament era. We're in a post-New Testament era. And I don't believe we are. I believe we are right there with Peter and Paul and Silas and Lydia and Priscilla and Luke in the New Testament era under the New Testament scriptures. So ultimately, I agree with Sam Storms. The burden of proof is on the cessationists to show that certain New Testament teachings are no longer valid or applicable, and I've honestly yet to read a cessationist argument from Scripture that demonstrates this. Yes, there are absolutely people who go way beyond the bounds of the Bible in their practice of some spiritual gifts, but this counterfeit behavior which is probably demonic in some cases, or in the other cases, maybe just fleshly immaturity, that kind of behavior does not disprove the genuine and biblical operation of some spiritual gifts any more than the prevalence of false teachers in the United States today invalidates the possibility of any real Bible teaching. I believe that Peter's quote in Acts chapter 2 settles the issue of the contemporary occurrence of dreams and visions from God for us today. God promises in the Old and New Testament, in the book of Joel and in Acts chapter 2, that he will pour out his spirit on all people in the last days and that they will see visions and dream dreams. This passage indicates that dreams and visions will happen in 
quote, the last days. Since Peter suggests that Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about the Spirit being poured out and dreams and visions coming, then I can't see how that is not valid for us today. I don't think we've moved past the last days. I think that would be impossible, honestly. Uh, And I see no scripture in the entire Bible that indicates that God has stopped speaking to his people in these ways. So see there in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, where Peter quotes the Joel prophecy that says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Now, if prophecy has ceased and visions and dreams have ceased, then we must be in a post-last days age and a post-New Testament age. And honestly, that would be weird. That would be strange. How can we be in an age beyond the last days? So let's be real. Would it be easier in many ways if God only spoke to Christians through his word? Would it be less messier, easier to manage, etc.? Absolutely it would. There are way too many false prophets and false dreamers out there, and you can just see them easily daily in your social media feed and bestsellers at Christian bookstores, and you can easily find them just by turning on your television and looking for the religious TV channels. So many false teachers and believers out there are preying on widows and stealing from the vulnerable. Unfortunately, most of them seem to be of the continuationist or charismatic bent. But humans and church leaders don't get to make the call that God no longer does this or that because some people are abusing it. We don't have that power. Instead, we have to seek to hold people to the word of God rather than nullify it. We uphold the absolute authority of God's word, not by changing it to stamp out heresy, but by walking according to it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22 says, Don't stifle the Spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. So, we don't stifle the Spirit. We don't despise prophecies. That's a command. We do test all things. We do hold on to what is good, and we stay away from every kind of evil. And I think Isaiah in the Old Testament gives us some guidance exactly how to do that. Isaiah eight nineteen is talking about uh, those who falsely prophesy in a variety of ways. And he says, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God instead? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instructions and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. I think we go to the word first And we test every prophecy and every uh, dream and vision by the word. And if it doesn't match up, we stay away from it. Should we separate in the church over these issues? I don't believe so. Well, we're going to discuss that question in depth in really just, I think, two days when we get to Paul's beautiful and majestic call to oneness in Romans 15. But I don't believe that 
people who have differing views of the gifts of the Spirit and other non-essential doctrines should separate over it. More on that in a couple of days. Let me close with two gems from Spurgeon. One is a dream with a fairly profound meaning, and the other is actually a caution about the importance of esteeming dreams and extra-biblical revelation over much. I do believe in dreams and visions from God. I believe they're rare. I do believe in the ongoing gift of prophecy. We have a command to eagerly desire it. But I believe you test every prophetic word according to the word of God, and no prophetic word has any level of authority that comes near to the word of God. So here's Spurgeon's dream. This is what he says. A certain king would build a cathedral, and that the credit of it might be all his own. He forbade anyone to contribute to its erection in the least degree. A tablet was placed in the side of the building, and on it his name was carved as the builder of this temple. But one night he saw in a dream an angel who came down and erased his name, and the name of a poor widow appeared there instead. This was three times repeated. When the enraged king woke up, he summoned the woman before him and demanded, What have you been doing and why have you broken my commandment? The trembling widow replied, I loved the Lord and longed to do something for his name and for the building up of his church. I was forbidden to touch it or help in any way, so in my poverty I simply bought a wisp of hay for the horses that drew the stones there. Then the king saw that he had labored for his own glory, but the widow labored for the glory of God, and he commanded that her name should be inscribed upon the tablet. Now that's just um, a illustration of something that Spurgeon couched in terms of a dream from his book uh, on his sermon notes on, I believe it's uh, passage in Genesis. This next is more of a caution from his words of wisdom for daily living. He says, remember it is quote, whosoever calls upon the name of God that is saved, not whosoever dreams about him. Dreams may be good. Sometimes people have been frightened out of their senses in dreams and they were better out of their senses than they were in, for they did more mischief when they were in their senses than they did when they were out, and the dream did good in that sense. Some people too have been alarmed by dreams, but to trust to them is to trust to a shadow, to build your hopes on bubbles, scarcely needing a puff of wind to burst them into nothingness. Oh, remember, you lack no vision or a marvelous appearance. If you have had a vision or a dream, you need not despise it. It may have benefited you, but do not trust to it. And I think that's good counsel that we don't first seek spiritual experiences like dreams and visions, but we first go to the Word of God to hear from God. Speaking of that, let's read our Bible passages for today. Genesis chapter 43, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, "'Go back and buy us a little food.' But Judah said to him, That man specifically warned us, You will not see me again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, You will not see me again unless your brother is with you. Why have you caused me so much trouble? Israel asked. Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? 
They answered, The man kept asking about us and our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How could we know that he would say, Bring your brother here? Then Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die, neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balsam, a little honey, aromatic gum and resin, pistachios and almonds. Take twice as much silver with you. Return the silver that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back at once to the man. May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, if I am deprived of my sons, then I am deprived. And the men took this gift, double the amount of silver and Benjamin. They immediately went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, Take the men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. But the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house, and they said, We've been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us, seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. So they approached Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the doorway of the house. They said, "'My lord, we really did come down here the first time only to buy food. "'When we came to the place where we lodged for the night and opened our bags of grain, "'each one's silver was at the top of his bag. "'It was the full amount of our silver, and we brought it back with us. "'We've bought additional silver with us to buy more food. "'We don't know who put the silver in the bags.' "'Then the steward said, "'May you be well. Don't be afraid.' Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your bags. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and got feed for their donkeys. Since the men had heard that they were going to eat a meal there, they prepared their gift for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift they had carried into the house, and they bowed to the ground before him. He asked if they were well, and he said, How is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they knelt low and paid homage to him. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother, and he was about to weep. He went into an inner room and wept there, then he washed his face and came out. Regaining his composure, he said, Serve the meal. They served him by himself, his brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, since that is detestable to them. They were seated before him in order by age from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. 
They drank and became drunk with Joseph. Job's reply to Bildad. Job chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job answered, Yes, I know what you've said is true, but how can a person be justified before God? If one wanted to take him to a court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. If he passed by me, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, I wouldn't recognize him. If he snatches something, who can stop him? Who can ask him, what are you doing? God does not hold back his anger. Rahab's assistants cringe in fear beneath him. How then can I answer him or choose my arguments against him? Even if I were in the right, I could not answer. I could only beg my judge for mercy. If I summoned him and he answered me, I do not believe he would pay attention to what I said. He batters me with a whirlwind and multiplies my wounds without cause. He doesn't let me catch my breath, but fills me with bitter experiences. If it is a matter of strength, look, he's the powerful one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Even if I were in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, my mouth would declare me guilty, though I am blameless. I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It's all the same. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When catastrophe brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges. If it isn't he, then who is it? My days fly by faster than a runner. They flee without seeing any good. They sweep by like boats made of papyrus like an eagle swooping down on its prey. If I said, I will forget my complaint, change my expression and smile, I would still live in terror of all my pains. I know you will not acquit me since I will be found guilty. Why should I struggle in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with a lie, then you dip me in a pit of mud and my own clothes despise me. For he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But that is not the case. I am on my own. What a Gripping, gripping passage from Job. He rightly sees the majesty of God, but maybe hasn't, understandably so, apprehended the mercy of God. What a powerful verse, verse 33 is. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. How wonderful is it that we live in the New Testament era 
where there is a mediator between us, Jesus our Lord. There is one God, and now there is one mediator who has made peace between us and God by himself becoming the sacrifice for our sins, by himself bringing us together, satisfying the one with perfect justice, and giving us the righteousness that was clothed around Jesus. Thanks be to God that he is the mediator that Job was looking for. Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah, see, there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason, for it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience, and for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you honor." Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Beside this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Amen. May the word of God be an encouragement and an edification to you. Good day and Godspeed.